The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So uh, a couple things that didn't make our video announcements that I want to point out. Um, one is baby dedication. Every Mother's Day, we have a baby dedication. And uh, if you have had a baby in the last year, we would invite you to participate in that. That's really an opportunity where we can pray over you and agree as a church to uh, be a part of helping raise your uh, child in the Lord as, uh, as they're a part of this body. Uh, so that's going to be taking place on May 9th. And then there, the following Wednesday, there's going to be a mixer for uh, you as parents and couples uh, to get together and get to know one another, and uh, you can get signed up on the hub. I think the, the, they need the baby picture. There's a baby picture involved. They need to get that by, I think it's like May 5th. So uh, take a look at that. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Uh, also, I, before I forget, because I know I'm going to forget, <clears throat> but this is, a, this is a big deal that uh, this is our last week as a church for there to be uh, uh, COVID-19 restrictions. We are gonna, yes, there you go. <laughs> so masks will become optional, um, and, uh, but we will, you guys will be able to seat yourself once again. We, the only thing we're gonna ask is that you leave a space or two between you and the next group or family. Um, maybe for a little bit longer, we'll, uh, we'll do that, but, but that is coming. By the way, also, next week, we, our service times change. We're going to uh, a 9.15 and an 11 o'clock service, so make a note of that. Um, we would love all those who are watching online as well to uh, come back and join us uh, as, we, uh, as we gather as a, as a body. So I'm going to open with this question. <laughs> Have you ever awakened from a dream that was so vivid, like, like so real, that you were just convinced, like this is, this is really going on. Uh, I tend to, to dream pretty vividly. I've had a, one of those uh, uh, probably every year, and I'll jump out of bed in the cold sweat, turn on the news to catch up on you know, the latest zombie apocalypse because one of them was like chasing me through my dreams, right? We've all had a dream or two like that. Our, our dreaming minds uh, place us in story after story after story because they're trying to work things out, work out the mysteries, the burdens that we carry in life. You know, all those things that are going on right at the edge of our consciousness, the edge of our understanding, things that we don't have the, the strength or the insight to really solve. And I think within all people is this hope that one day we're going to wake to find <clears throat> Uh, that story, that unifying story that makes sense of everything. And whoever it is that tells that story um, is going to be one that we want to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our confidence that you have a story to tell. And Father, you invite us into that story. I pray that today as we look at Jesus calling these first disciples, that we would put ourselves in their shoes, that we would walk in the, the places that they walked and we would experience what they experienced because you want to train us up as well as your disciples. So Father, I pray that uh, you would guide us today. Your grace would be abundant. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
So like I said, today we're going to be looking at the calling of uh, Jesus' first four disciples. And as he calls them, he's really inviting them to plant their lives firmly in God's story. Let's pick it up in uh, Mark chapter 1, in verse 16. So passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, this is likely not the first time for Andrew and Simon to encounter Jesus. Uh, This actually um, probably is taking place weeks or months after their first encounter. You see, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And on a particular day when Jesus is walking by, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And, uh, and Andrew follows him home. And then the very first thing he does, he can't wait to run and find his brother Simon or Peter and tell him the news. We have found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, which makes an awful lot of sense of uh, what we read here that Um, they immediately left their nets and they followed Jesus upon his request. There's probably um, backstory to all this from the the, the weeks and months prior. I think as people read through this, there's always this question that goes through our mind, like, did they know what they were getting into? Like, like what, is there there a job description? Like, uh, Jesus could, do you have a job description so we could kind of take a look at it, see if we're a good fit for this? You know, it seems like you're really in the market for extroverts, and I'm really an INFP. I, I, I'm an introvert. I need my time to recuperate at the end of the day away from people. Or uh, I'm a three on the Enneagram, Jesus, and uh, it's obvious you're looking for twos. They love to serve people. And by the way, stay away from those fours. They're a little artsy-fartsy. Like, what were these guys signing on for? Well, there's no doubt that Jesus was calling his disciples to a very specific work. These guys would all become the apostles of the early church. But everywhere Jesus went, um, his teaching uh, would be to come and to follow me, to come and be my disciple, to be a learner. Jesus was not calling converts. He was calling followers. And And a follower's life will increasingly point others to God's story because they're convinced that God's story is the only story that makes sense of everything. And these guys were convinced of it. The first thing that Andrew does, his heart is burning within him and he runs to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. In his book, Not a Fan, Kyle Eidelman Not an easy word to say, a name to say, but his message to the church is this. Jesus was never looking for fans. He was looking for followers. In an interview, he, he would go on to say this. He says, I would say that fans want to be close enough to Jesus to be associated with him. They want to be close enough to get the benefits, but not so close that it requires real sacrifice, real commitment. 
Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> we may not think of it this way, but, but we're all disciples. Like, we are all disciples of something or uh, someone. We just got to figure out who that is, right? Like, like, where do our affections go? Who is it that we want the attention of? Um, where do we spend our time, our talents, and our treasures? It might be that uh, you follow a particular pastor or writer. Like, like they, the way they say things, you just cannot get enough of it, right? Or, or maybe you follow an athlete or a coach, or maybe it's an entertainer. Maybe you can't wait to turn on the TV or to stream the, the latest musings of a, a political commentator because they just know how to frame the world just the right way. Or maybe it's a social issue, a social position perhaps that's become your crusade. Or maybe it's just a hobby. Maybe it's a fitness craze. Maybe it's a diet. Or maybe it's like a, a project in your life that's just kind of grown out of control and seems to be consuming all your time. We're all a disciple of something or someone. Jesus says this. We read this earlier for the prayer, but it's uh, worth repeating. Out of Mark 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Are you a follower or a fan of Jesus? Are you, are you part of his story or have you merely invited him into your story? As the disciples follow Jesus, they are going to learn to love and to trust Jesus with all their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. There's going to be places where there's going to be an offense that's going to happen on a regular basis. And Jesus is not going to do what they expect or what they want. But their hearts are going to burn increasingly within them because they know <clears throat> with conviction that this man, Jesus, he's going to change the world. The most compelling evidence I think that we see in Mark is uh, Jesus' power and authority. Authority is defined this way. It's the power or rights to give orders, to make decisions, and enforce obedience. And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over both the invisible world and the visible world. Let me show you what I mean. Let's uh, continue reading here in uh, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's that word again, Dave reminded us, it's gonna, we're going to see this all through uh, Mark, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So it's a fine Sabbath Saturday morning, and Jesus steps up to begin to teach and, uh, and the way he taught, it says, is as one who had authority. 
not as the scribes. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the scribes were bad. I mean, the scribes were really religious lawyers. And I realize all the punchlines that come to your mind as I say that, like, I get it, right? But they were religious lawyers, and their, their, their job was to interpret the law to the people, to settle disputes that they might have, and to teach them so that they could live in a way um, that was honoring to God. But here's the thing. Their authority came from outside of themselves. Their authority came from outside themselves. I mean, they would oftentimes appeal to a better-known teacher Um, Like I might say to you, God wants us to walk in obedience. But then I might quote Matt Chandler who says, God is awesome. He doesn't want you to be awesome. He wants you to be obedient. It has a little bit more punch, right? A bigger name. We know who he is. He has more authority in a sense. Well, Jesus would reverse that order. Jesus would point to um, what others would say, and then he would wrap it up by sharing what he believed, what, what he uh, would teach. He would have the final word, the authoritative word. We see that in uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew, uh, where we read, you've heard that it was said, these are Jesus' words speaking, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults I shouldn't have turned around. Now i got to figure out where I'm at. Yeah, there we are. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And he goes on in another, another example. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you feel the authority that Jesus has when he teaches His authority didn't come from outside of himself. His authority was inherently his to claim. It was his to claim, and it was his to delegate to those that were his. Then immediately we read, Mark tells us, uh, the scene has changed here. Pick it up in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So these unseen beings, these uh, demons, right? We don't know whether it's uh, plural demons or demon, but uh, these, this, the unseen demon in this man recognized who Jesus was. They, they feared, are, are you here to destroy us? So where did that come from? Well, Dave, last week as he introduced Mark, reminded us that right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness where the devil brought his A-game. 
right? He brings his A-game, does everything he can, thinks this is going to be a piece of cake. It works back in the garden with Adam. It's going to work right here with, with the, the second Adam, with Jesus, and he gets a big L, right? He gets shut down. There's a loss, and the truth is that the demons recognize they're now on notice, and, they, and they're afraid. And so have you come to destroy us, they ask. Notice also that they know exactly who he is. They recognize him in his humanity. They call him Jesus of Nazareth and also in his deity. We know that you're the Holy One of God. And notice too how simply Jesus uh, rebukes them. Six little words, be silent, come out of him. And then they, they do it. As simple as that. Well, there's a kind of a slamming the door on the way out, right? You know, they, they shriek on the way out as the man comes back into his right mind. And all at once, people are recognized there's something unique about the teaching of this man. He teaches and he does with great authority. And his fame spreads everywhere. So the rabbi Jesus has authority over the invisible world. And I, and I do hope, as I say that, that that brings comfort to you. When things go bump in the night, is to realize that for those who are in Christ Jesus, that same authority um, is, is ours in Christ. And we have nothing to fear from the demonic world. And I, I think that that's important for us to, to, to remember. So Jesus has authority over the invisible world, but he also has authority over the visible world. Let's continue reading in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came to look for her, or came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Pause while I take a drink here. So Simon's mother-in-law, that says, lay ill with fever. And we may not think uh, that's that big of a deal in the, the, the day and age that we live in, where we have um, so many medicines, where we have hospitals, where we have churches and, that are filled with doctors and, and nurses and such, where we have an understanding of the cause of disease the way they did. But, but back in this day, somebody that was flat on their back with fever, they would take very, very seriously. It's a big deal. And so they, they come to Jesus and they, they tell Jesus about her. And my, my thought is why? Like why would you go to the teacher to tell the teacher about a sickness? Well, likely because Jesus didn't fit in the box, right? Like they didn't know which box to put Jesus in. And they're like, well, let's take a shot at it. Let's, let's ask him about um, this situation and, uh, and lo and behold, simple as that, he takes her by the hand and, uh, and raises her to full health and vitality where she can begin to serve them. Question for you. Are there things in your life where 
Maybe you've put Jesus in the wrong box, and maybe there's things that you don't think to take to him in prayer. I think that the Lord says, I want you to come to me with any and all circumstances going on in your life. I want you to be a part of my story. It says in Matthew 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. My little memory device uh, through the years uh, for this is that God can be trusted. He can be trusted to provide, to guide, and to move aside those things in our life. He, He invites us into his story and wants to show us his authority and his power in our lives. The more we do, the more we go to him, the more we bring to him in prayer, the more that we are entering into his story and the less that we feel like he's just kind of relegated to being a spectator in our story. So Jesus heals uh, their mother. He clearly has authority over the invisible world and the visible world. And his fame is spreading everywhere, right? People are coming from all around to to be healed, to be cleansed of evil spirits. And the disciples are convinced that they're part of something something huge, something big, something world-changing is going on. This is going to be great. And has anybody seen Jesus? They're wondering, like, where, where did Jesus go? Let's pick it up here. So he's healed late into the night, and the people are now coming back the next morning. And rising early, it says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So <clears throat> the disciples are really excited about what, uh, what's, what's happening here. Like this is big news, right? This is big time. They've uh, you know, got their, their money together. They've built a big old sound stage. They've got big speaker stacks and lighting system. And this is going to be revival night two. We just got to convince Jesus to come be a part of this, right? So they're so convinced this is the direction we're going right here. This is the epicenter of it all. And Jesus says, you don't understand. I didn't come to be famous. I didn't come to make you famous. I came to be about telling the story of my father in all the surrounding towns and all those synagogues. And there's this sense right here where you, you get the sense that Jesus causes some offense to these guys. Like here's an opportunity for, for their understanding, their love of Christ to grow here. And it does. He offends their thinking. He, he does something unexpected. And they trust. We trust this guy. We trust his authority. We're going to follow him. But on and on through the gospel, we're going to see these places where he, Jesus does not do what they expect. <clears throat> the gospel that Jesus preached was primarily an invitation into a new kingdom with a new king, new citizenship, a new identity. It was new 
invisible kingdom loyalties that Jesus was calling his followers uh, that must take precedent over his, our visible kingdom loyalties. God gives us new invisible kingdom loyalties that have to take precedent over our loyalties in this realm to all the things that we, that we find ourselves being loyal to in this life. He's like, I'm number one. That's what I'm calling you to. Well, there's uh, one more healing that takes place in this chapter. Uh, it comes in the form of a desperate cry from a leper. Um, and this was a horrible disease. It left those who contracted it isolated, diminished, and sidelined from, uh, uh, from life. They felt abandoned by um, their, their people. They felt abandoned by God. And, um, and, and the man comes and he, and he calls out to Jesus, if you are willing... If you are willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus, in his compassion, does the unthinkable. And he reaches out and he touches the man. You know, pulling him from the the shadowy sidelines back into the the lights of the living. And he's clean. He was cured and he was clean. As we consider each of these stories, each of these people that were impacted by demons or sickness or leprosy, The question, um, I think, is which story do they see themselves in? Like as they're they're walking through these circumstances, the question is which story do they see themselves in? Because here's what I know, that the past you root your life in determines the future you long for. The past you root your life in determines the future that you long for. Y'all, we, we all have an origin story. You may not think of it like that, but we all have an origin story. An origin story really is that part of our past that we give the greatest importance to. And, all, and, and oftentimes we have it just in our back pocket. And when somebody puts us in the wrong box, right, we're like, uh-uh-uh-uh, I don't think you understand what I've been through. We tell them a little bit of our origin story. Recently, a buddy of mine, a pastor friend of mine, I care for deeply, he called me up to tell me that he had been fired from his job. And the way that the church had gone about it was horrible. Like, it was just horrible. And so we got together over coffee and, and began to talk and commiserate. And um, I began to tell him a little bit of my origin story. Dumb churches, dumb people, dumb leadership, You see, at each of the four churches I've served at, there was a wound in my own life that occurred that was so vivid. I mean, I can can tell you all the details about what happened. And that really was my origin story, and I would throw it out there um, regularly. When anybody um, tried to put me in a box and didn't understand the pain that I had gone through, right? But as we talked, I, I found myself come into this conclusion with him I just said bro who are we to think that we should not bear any wounds like who are we to think that we should not bear any wounds because it all comes down to which story do you see yourself in back to the sermon on the mount this is what Jesus said of all of us of all his 
disciples. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, someone famous has said that God is awesome. He doesn't want you to be awesome. He wants you to be obedient. And here's the thing. It is not that, that our wounds don't matter to God. Our wounds matter immensely to God. But it really comes down to the question is, do I believe that Jesus bore those wounds on the cross to gain healing? Like, do I really believe that? For those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a different origin story. Jesus is our origin story. Ephesians 2 says we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Like that's an origin story. That's a, that's a different story oftentimes in the way I frame my life. Jesus is my origin story and all those who follow Christ and so we walk in that confidence day in, day out. And the truth is, Jesus is going to come again. He is coming to, to return. And Jesus' power and authority is going to make the invisible world and the visible world indivisible. That's the story that he wants told. That's the story that Jesus is calling all of us to. The story he is telling is it going, it will make sense of everything. It's the story of the world. And it goes like this. In the beginning, brilliant light filled a garden. Refreshed by the cool dew of each new morning, man walked with his creator. God tabernacled with man face to face, day by day, until an unseen darkness slithered into the forest canopy, awaiting opportunity. Darkness promised life, delivered death. Man bit deep into the bitter fruit of knowledge and left hungry and afraid. And a seam stitched tight by sin and death ruptured creation into separate worlds of light and darkness. The world of light eclipsed from the darkened side of man. Like one trapped behind a one-way mirror, man could no longer see God or his messengers unless they chose to be manifest. Mercifully, God promised a coming rescue, wooing men and women to himself as the sands of time slipped by and a nation was born. A burning bush an angel of death, a parting sea, a pillar of cloud and fire, God brought his people out of slavery to the mountain of God to establish relationship. Ground rules for broken people are revealed and accepted. And God gives his Israel the blueprints for a tent, a tabernacle, God's presence among his people. And up and down and up and down it goes as they journey to the land of promise. And then arrival, entrance, conquest, and possession of a bountiful land flowing with milk and honey. Then the new construction, like the old, but now a more permanent tabernacle. The temple was born and it was consecrated. And so it served for a time. 
There God's glory dwelt. His glorious light and wisdom would surround his house and his people as his fame radiated out to the many nations of the world. But as the decades turned to centuries, his priests turned away and God left his temple and a great darkness filled the land. When time was full, pregnant with hope, Israel gave birth to a great light. Jesus, the Son of God, and now the Son of Man, spoke into the darkness and he walked among us. John 1 says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He challenged the darkness, revealing himself to be God's true temple. Destroy this temple, he said. In three days, I'll raise it. He said it, then did it. And the bursting threads of that dark temple's veil ripped open the night as the Savior surrendered, arms stretch wide. And that curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies was now a signpost to all that the seam separating the visible world from the invisible worlds held by the thread of sin and death was being pulled free in the mighty hands of creation's Savior and King. Now two millennia have come and gone, And God has met directly with his people. He tabernacles in and through his church. Every child of God becomes his sanctuary. Jesus describes it this way. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. We are born of spirit by grace through faith. And we must not be like the priests of old, but honor God and his temple and keep it pure. Our hearts and minds transformed and guarded to reckon the power of sin and death fruitless. God dwells in us. Jesus beckons us, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And he leads us into new habits of scripture, obedience, prayer, and worship, both separate and together as the church. And he clothes us in purpose, identity, value, and a future, the future, our future, creation's future. We, we look ahead with hope to the day that Jesus returns to make visible his kingdom of lights and to raise up all the sons and daughters of the king, bodies and minds transformed to enter his kingdom of lights and the earth, the, the earth, it must be made ready to receive her king. Every detestable thing, every enemy of God must be judged and stripped of power and removed, including that ancient curse suffocating creation. And then a new dawn will awaken. Its radiance will fill every corner of every forest and every home, and all will be made new and whole and at peace. Then the visible And the invisible kingdoms will become indivisible. And Jesus will tabernacle with his people forever as God's glory fills the cosmos. I guess if you had to summarize the purpose of all world history, it's a story of tabernacle. God bringing the visible bride of creation and the invisible groom of heaven together made indivisible forever.